Hello and welcome to Makecast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history. As part of the Made's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring joy, uh, to continue to bring history through you to lectures like this one and the one you're about to hear in a few minutes. My name is Red. I'm Chen. And I'm Miles. This week, Alex is meeting up with Chip Morningstar and Matt Hargett later on to talk about their experiences working at LucasArts and to get down to the nitty gritty tech talk of running scum. Uh, this will be some very interesting uh, nitty-gritty technical information for all you uh, super nerds out there, like us included. Uh, <laughs> so stay interested in all of this. We recommend uh, you stick with it. It is a very enlightening and interesting talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and but like before we get into any of that, we are going to save some of the news and other little tidbits of information for after this, because we want to let you guys get in on this. And also what, a, what kind of an, what an amazing name that chip morning star. Uh, I, I gotta say Matt Hargate, uh, also fantastic name, but man, chip morning star. Yeah, really morning morning star. And one on that one. Yes. Um, absolutely. <laughs> uh, we gotta say when they're talking about, uh, all this other stuff too, you'll get to hear, uh, a little bit what it was like for both of these guys uh, talking about working for Lucasfilm Games uh, at the time and just their experience with all of it as well. And you'll be able to hear how Chip got the job at Lucasfilm, uh, which I personally found, thought was a very interesting story. And another, uh, his morning star doth aligned. We'll say that. Um <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sick. Give me a break. Um, <laughs> we'll get over it. But uh, we want to let you guys get into that, and then we'll have another good talk about the news and all of our other fancy stuff mm-hmm. once we get all of this to your ear holes. <laughs> I need to stop talking. I told you I'm sick. Let's throw it on to the people who you guys are here to really hear. Uh, Alex, Chip, Morningstar, and Matt Hargett. Okay, welcome everybody. Classic uh, um, uh, exercise in, in the futility of certain kinds of distributed social activities, encouraging people to try to do a sing along over the phone. Exactly. It's, uh, it's how it doesn't work. No, it does not. You really have to be in the same room. Uh, welcome back, everybody. This is Alex here. I have today with me the illustrious Chip Morningstar, who is the co creator and really the heavy, heavy nerd behind uh, Habitat, the super programmer uh, who uh, I had to bring in my own super programmer just to question properly and who will join us later in the show, uh, Matt Hargett from last week. But Chip, uh, uh, thank you so much for being here. I I wanted to focus on your early career and how the hell you got to be such a good programmer and got a job at Lucasfilm Games. Uh, Well, um, yeah, I'm not, I don't, to hold myself up as being a, a super programmer, although I'm always thrilled if other people do. Um, the way actually the way I got a job at Lucasfilm Games is 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 a little peculiar. Um, I was I was working at a lab in in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, been a big fan of computer graphics and uh, um, 
we had uh, SIGGRAPH in Detroit in um, 19, uh, just, yeah, summer of 83. Um, and one of the things that happened was uh, there were a number of papers that were at SIGGRAPH from uh, various people at, uh, at Lucasfilm, the Lucasfilm uh, Graphics Group. And one of them was um, Bill Reeves' seminal paper on particle systems. And it just blew me away. I was just like, whoa, this is the first thing I've seen that isn't about drawing polygons. And since I'd always been skeptical of the whole idea of uh, orienting your world around drawing polygons, um, because the world is mostly not made of polygons, um, I, I was just impressed. And then uh, earlier that year, I had gotten a chance to go uh, visit uh, Lucasfilm um, as a result of uh, hanging out with an old friend of mine who was working for Atari at the time. Um, and we had both flown out to the West Coast to attend the, the National Computer Conference. And he had to make a visit to uh, Lucasfilm. Um, and he said, well, why don't you just come along with me? And I said, oh, this sounds like fun. So I tagged along and we, we went and we visited Lucasfilm. And then he and I went up to my, my family's place up in uh, uh, up in the Sierras and then drove down together to Anaheim for the NCC. And as I got to see uh, the Lucasfilm uh, computer division offices in San Rafael and meet some of the people there and watch what they're doing, and my whole reaction was, oh, this is so cool. I would just love to work here. This is just everything seems like paradise. And so when uh, Bill Reeves published this paper, I was like, I've got to do something and and uh, the call on the paper was their address so i just sent him my resume i just cold cold sent him my resume with a very audacious cover letter and uh figured um you know probably nothing will come of this but hey a stamp was you know whatever it was 35 cents or whatever it was in those days you know and a guy can dream um you know it's kind of like buying a lottery ticket you know what you're purchasing is is not you know is, is the, the chance to fantasize about what would happen if you won uh and um, didn't think much about it after that. And round about December, we were, my wife and I were getting ready to move out to the West Coast because Xanadu, who I was affiliated with at the time, had gotten some funding. And one of the things they had done was pay for everybody to move to the West Coast because they figured that would be a better environment for them to get further backing for for hypertext. And so we were in the process of loading up a rental car for um, another adventure, which we don't have time to get into here. But but uh, we we're literally an hour or half hour before when the guy from the phone company was supposed to come and disconnect our phone, which is how it worked in those days. You actually had to call the phone company and have them do that. Um, and my phone rang. And it was Peter Langston from Lucasfilm Games. And he said, uh, you know, hi, is this Chip Morningstar? And I said, yes. And he said, well, hi, this is Peter Langston from Lucasfilm. Um, we got your resume. Um, and then um, something happened, and I lost it. And now HR is on my back because they're supposed to have it for their files, and I'm going to get into trouble. And would you mind terribly sending me another copy? And I said, well, sure, no problem. Um, and uh, But I'm in the process of moving to, to California, so can I get back to you in a couple of weeks? And he said, sure. And so I did that and uh, sent them another another copy of the resume. And then he called me back um, about three, four weeks later when I was now uh, 
on the, on the West Coast, and he says, uh, "Well, since since we had this sort of embarrassing song and dance, why don't you just come up and and uh, um, you know we'll interview you? Then just we we at least owe you that." And uh, and so I did, and it was one of these uh, um, uh, you know interviews made in heaven, where. Um, we all just loved each other terribly. And, uh, uh, a couple of the other guys there said, well, it's like you always work here. And I just felt tremendously at home and apparently they liked me. And so they made me an offer. Um, at which point I said, well, I'm, I'm committed to doing this Xanadu thing, but can I, you know, if that doesn't work, can I call you? And they said, oh yeah, okay. And so this was December of 83. And so round about May when, uh, um, the funding for Xanadu dried up. I gave Peter Langston a call saying, I need a job now. And he said, well, come on up. And I interviewed again, and it was even more fabulous. Um, and they made me an offer, and so I went to work for them. And it was like, I'm not quite sure exactly how the chemistry happened, but it was a lot of it was interpersonal chemistry. I think a lot of it was um, their whole approach was to bring a degree of engineering sophistication to an industry which up until that point didn't have much and my particular take on things was was very very uh compatible with that and they had a couple of particular technical problems they were dealing with which were kind of right out right down my alley and so all of those things kind of combined so the way you get a job at lucasfilm is you have um a memorable last name which is how peter was able to track me down through the phone book and then have them lose your paperwork uh so I want to turn it over now to Matt Hargett, who is here, and I hope Matt hits record on his side right now. Sorry, uh, recording. Matt has some very. Uh, Matt was here last week, and he has some very specific contextual questions about your programming choices that you made back in the day. And I'm going to hand this uh -oh. over and let you guys go, but I am going to have to cut you off in about 15 minutes. So, uh, Matt, all yours. Awesome. Thanks so much, Alex. Um, so. Uh, uh, so I worked on open source projects that helped re-implement the Sierra Creative Interpreter and the Adventure Game Interpreter from Sierra. And then I worked on ScumVM uh, a little bit also. Um, and uh, I've been working in technology for about 25 years. I started programming in 1984. So, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to go so far back that I have context on some things. And I have watched uh, your interviews with like the Computer History Museum, which I found really illuminating. I love those uh, verbal histories to give me some more of this context. And there's a couple of questions I had that relate to how scum and proto-scum things came about based on the, the history of what was going on at the time. So okay. in about 1970, there was O-Code, which was BCPL. And that seemed to kick off this concept. It was available, made available on different microcomputers. That seemed to kick off this idea of a byte code or having like a cross-platform code where you could write it once and then run it on a number of different microcomputers or mainframe platforms. Right. And then in right. around- San Diego, UCSD, Pascal, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then in 1974, there was UC San Diego uh, made this P system of byte code so that they didn't have, there was more and more computer science students and for them to run their programs at all, it took up too much mainframe time. So like we need a way for them to run their programs on cheaper computers. So they made P code, which I programmed in on Apple IIs when I was in high school. My high school was not the richest high school in the world. Um, so I went from Turbo Pascal to UCSD Pascal, which was a jarring experience, but it did work. 
And then in 1979, it seems to come to games, finally, uh, this concept of cross-platform bytecode or interpreter code with the Z machine used for Zork and Infocom adventures. And so, and then in 1980, the Smalltalk virtual machine was made available across multiple platforms. Smalltalk existed before then, but that's the first time it was really you in your bedroom or your basement could put it on your crappy microcomputer, write programs and run them and, and kind of debug them. So that's a kind of a, a, a micro history of like intermediate language in action, not just white papers and stuff. And what I'd love to know is were, were you at the time aware of, the, of that developing kind of momentum for that concept? And did that inform SCUM or some of those proto-SCUM projects early on at Lucas? Um, that's kind of what I want to get, get perspective on. Okay. Okay, sure. Um, so I was certainly aware of, of uh, UCSDP system and uh, Smalltalk. I was just a huge enthusiast for Smalltalk. In fact, uh, um, I, I had an abortive startup just before, um, just after I graduated from college, trying to do CAD in in Smalltalk, and uh, never went anywhere. It really never got off the ground at all. But I'm just a huge Smalltalk enthusiast. But um, I don't know that any of that thinking figured directly into Scum. Um, although obviously the, the some of the ideas were percolating in the back of my head. I was aware of them. So it wasn't like when the, the way Scum came about was uh, it really wasn't fundamentally at first, at least about cross-platform. Um, it was about um, cost of engineering. And uh, the fundamental driving observation that, that kind of led to Scum was is due to Ron Gilbert. Um, um, and you could probably pump him for 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 further details about this but, oh, but ron, yeah ron had the observation that um there are in, in, in building a, a game like an a, adventure game or something like that the the pieces of programming which are are hard and delicate and require careful engineering nuance and things like that or things like the renderer I mean, graphics you know getting high performance graphics rendering out of a 6502 based machine um, really requires you to get in those days to, to do some very finely crafted hand-coded assembly language programming and all the games in those days were written uh, on those platforms were all written in assembly language because you just could not afford the overhead of a higher level language but then, um, on the other hand, the place in the code where all of the churn happens during development, um, where you're constantly having to fiddle with things and change things and, and debug and re-debug and, and, and constantly be second-guessing yourself, was in the, the game logic, the, the, the set of puzzles and uh, gameplay. Um, all of which follows the, the 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 logic of that is all mostly fairly simple. Um, it is not something which does a lot of computation per se. It's not computationally intensive at all. And so that's something that could be could be represented by a very simple high level scripting language, um, which you could then interpret. 
um, and you could you could afford the interpretive overhead because it's actually not doing very much computation for those things because all the all the intensive CPU cycles are doing things like rendering pixels. But the the game logic um, was was fairly fairly simple, or it was, it was simple computationally. It was not simple at all in terms of its its global structure and in terms of all of the the, the details, which which are the thing that actually make up the game. Um, and so you want to be able to have something where you can express higher level of abstractions and that you can change it and very easily just make a change, try it out, make another change, try it out, do that kind of iterative program development thing, which, which interpretive languages lend themselves to. You can instrument the hell out of it. Um, and, um, and so the way SCUM came about was Ron put these two things together. He said, the part that's computation intensive has to be an assembly language, but the part that's difficult from a, a development perspective can be in a high level language and do much computation. And so he came to me and he said, well, I got this idea. Could we do a simple scripting language? And he kind of sketched out some ideas for, for what the language would be like. Um, and I've got a fair bit of background in doing things like compilers and um, language processing engines and things like that. I understand um, um, grammar and sort of the nuances of grammar and parsing pretty well, or at least I used to. Um, um, I've since met people who are sort of savants in that area, and I no longer think of myself as an expert in that. Um, uh, but um, you know, there was a time when sort of Yak, the yet another compiler compiler tool on Unix, was sort of my my Swiss Army knife that I used for everything, and uh, and I used it for some really implausible things, and. Um, and so Ron said, "Well, could you, could could we do, could we build a simple uh, interpretive bytecode language that this could that we could compile this this higher level scripting language to?" And I said, "Yeah, sure, that'd be that'd be really easy." Um, and so he and I kind of worked out the 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 particulars of what the bytecodes would be that it would compile to. And then I wrote the compiler, I debugged the grammar, made the, the high-level grammar make sense from a sort of parsing uh, gra gra grammar soundness point of view. And I implemented a compiler that compiled to this bytecode. And then Ron implemented an interpreter that would read the bytecode and run it. And then we put those two things together, and we had SCUM, um, which, which um, I, I, I guess I can claim the credit or the blame for the name um, Scum um, because the, the game was called Maniac Mansion. Actually, I think I named that game as well. I, I had a knack for naming things. Um, and script creation utility for Maniac Mansion just kind of fell out. Um, and uh, But I will not claim any responsibility for all of the other elements of the tool chain that followed from that where, where Ron and some of his cohorts basically came up with a tool to correspond to every every bodily fluid that you could imagine. <laughs> so there was mucus and phlegm and a couple of other things. Um, I think that's um, consistent. They were all very useful. I think that's also consistent with, uh, you know, Ron did a great talk, I believe at GDC, that was kind of a post-mortem or a postpartum of Monkey Island. And he talked about mm -hmm. how 
or maybe it was a different interview, talked about how the name Guybrush came from the the, the Mac art software, that was just Guy.brush, because it was Mac Paint or whatever it was back then. And that's like the name yeah. of the character. That is, right. I think I love about that story is one, you never know where inspiration will come from. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, two, just being able to recognize serendipity and not fight serendipity when it comes to stuff like that. Because easily you can yeah. have a good, it's like a two week fight, not a fight, but discussion about what do we name the character? And it's like, guy brush, done. Uh, or maybe there was discussion after that, but there is some consistency there about that. And not just to extract like a kernel, an accidental kernel here is like, it's okay to, have engineering arguments to try to find the best idea for the important things, but don't spend that same time on the not important, that same arguing time about the well, unimportant uh, things. Yeah. I tend to be someone who obsesses a lot over the names of things and the, the number of times in which placeholder names have become the real names and just sort of been adopted. Um, kind of undermine some of that. Um, <laughs> if you ever have, a, ever, ever have a chance to talk to AJ Redmer, uh, who was, uh, uh, one of the other people at, at, at Lucasfilm Games shortly after I was there and then um, was a, a big high mucky muck at Microsoft for a while. He has a great story about um, uh, uh, Project Gotham Racing that you should you should ask him. Okay. I won't we'll attempt have, to tell we'll the story for him. <laughs> you should definitely ask him about it. Um, the whole the whole gist of the story is names don't matter. Right. Uh, Speaking as a person to whom names are very important. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. I, 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 I like how you embrace your duality uh, <laughs> of what you have to be at peace with versus what your what your uh, what your nerd brain uh, wants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how are we? Uh, I believe on... the, the clinical term is bike shedding, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. So I guess you know, like I've honed in on a specific part of Scum or your time at LucasArts or your kind of impact on the kind of gaming industry. Is there like some aspect, like some technical achievement that, um, you know, sticks out in your mind that you don't usually get asked about or get to, or get to talk about something that people aren't aware of because it's not tangible or visible or interactable, but you're like, you know, something you had to noodle on for a while and you had an epiphany moment or it took a lot of hard work that, you feel like you haven't got the chance um, to. Sure. The, I think, well, I mean, I think the thing that probably is the most significant thing tech, in, in terms of my technical view of the world that came out of my experience at Lucasfilm. By the way, I was at Lucasfilm Games. LucasArts, once again, happened oh, after I. Uh, everybody knows it as LucasArts because LucasArts lasted a lot longer, um, but we were actually part of Lucasfilm at the time. Um, minor detail um, is the uh, the server architecture for habitat um, and the the way that the clients and the server cooperated to uh, present the, the model of the world to the clients and, and manage it on the server was um, an architecture which at the time just felt like, well, this is the path of least resistance. Just, this is just obviously how you do it. Um, um, a lot of this, the particulars of the ser server, uh, uh, the way the server is structured are could be attributed to Janet Hunter, who is one of the uh, main development people at uh, uh, Quantum, who is our online service partner, who um, was the, the main technical lead on their side. 
um, but the 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 client server uh, object model, um, the way we 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 stretched objects across uh, the network and all of that, um, which, as I say, at the time, to me, it just seemed like, well, this is obviously how you do it. How else could you possibly do it? And it was only much later that I came to realize, after bumping up against other things in the world, that we actually had invented something that was unique and was completely out of left field in terms of how everybody else was approaching this problem. And I have since basically re-implemented this same architecture God, I know eight or nine times now um, in different contexts, and it has sort of informed my 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 uh, perspective on building distributed systems ever since, and contains lessons which I've I've written uh, extensively about this, but it's kind of not part of the uh, the 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 conversation in the distributed systems world because it's just this weird branch off to the side, but which is um, um, become uh, more relevant in, uh, well, it's more relevant in the world of blockchain, as it turns out, but it's also um, relevant in the world of, of mobile games. Um, and uh, and so, you know, I, I remain hopeful that uh, the, uh, that this will become sort of a, a new idea that people will pick up more than they have. I mean, that, that chip that's what's it like to live 30 years in the future because that's basically been your whole career uh <laughs> yeah i i, I um, the, the way it's what it's like to live 30 years in the future is is to see other people making billions of dollars doing the thing that you did back when um uh, my entire career i think is is uh, uh uh is a story of me attempting to turn down the, the ahead of the curve now <laughs> yep well chip i appreciate you being here matt thank you for being here to ask us questions next week of course we will have randy your uh, co-conspirator on habitat and he will we're gonna let him talk about habitat because we really desperately wanted to answer some very deep technical questions this week so sure, very sure. Much appreciate you being well, here, chip. I'm, I'm happy to rant at length on anything so um you know feel free well, we'll have you and Randy in on a future episode, too. But uh, specifically, right. we're doing adventure games. And next week, as I said, we'll have Randy to talk as well. So thanks for being here, both of you. Take care. Thanks, Alex. Okay, we've been talking about video games, and we might be able to put some of this in the, like, in the rest of this. We've been talking about video game movies again. Again. This is... Like again. Uh, <laughs> because of another announcement. But uh, Bethesda announced uh, alongside Lucasfilm that they are doing an Indiana Jones game with an original story. Uh, I think that is the safest thing to do as to not touch the Indiana Jones franchise. Um, because, uh, like we were talking with the Resident Evil movies, uh, Miles, you watched them all, and your verdict is... They're not good, but they're fine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they are fun to make fun of. So um, They are so... fun to talk over. My my take on the Indiana Jones games is that they're kind of a mixed bag, but overall they're enjoyable. They actually kind of relate because they're all, you know, LucasArts titles. Um, and I think the best one is probably Fate of Atlantis, which is its own original story, and it was a point-and-click adventure game made in the 90s. Um, and I think between that and uh, Emperor's Tomb are the two I played. Um, 
uh, uh, you know, aside from the the Lego Indiana Jones ones, which are all great. Uh, oh, yes. Lego. Okay. You can't go wrong with Lego. Uh, yes. Lego franchise is, it, it is a whole second genre. It, it, I, 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 I attribute them to the early, uh, they're the early Weird Al of mm-hmm. video games. They are a parody, but they are a high tier quality parody. Yeah. Of the original games uh, and executed supremely well. So developers out there take note from Lego uh, and their whole marketing franchise. They are doing something right. You don't have to have an original idea, but you can Legofy an original idea and still make it your own. I always hear, I always hear very two side opinion about Lego games. I either hear it's being very good or very bad. Uh, The Lego Indiana Jones and the Lego Star Wars games fun fun just fun like they are like there is no no hiccup they are just very fun games i like i really can't i could talk them up to a point i'm not they're not the best games in the world but they're fun they are just fun they're fun video games i do have one or two qualifiers about this did Um, i say fun enough yet you did Um, (laughs) very fun they are fun games um Lego Star Wars, the original series, like the one, two, and three one that came out first, yes. uh, is like peak Lego for me. Like yes. peak Lego game. Then the the original trilogy came out, the second one, and it was also just a blockbuster, you know, smash hit. I loved it. Uh then Lego switched up their like game design or more like the the like the world creation aspect of it. And so instead of like, you know, all the Lego people just not talking, going, mm, 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 uh, you know, and just sort of like mumbling and um, uh, being animated, we started ripping lines from the movies. Uh, we started getting mm-hmm. actual like voice acting. Well, not voice acting. It was just, you know, movie lines pulled from the movies. Um, and I really noticed this for the uh, Lego Lord of the Rings games. And they just weren't as good. I just wasn't as happy with them. <laughs> and then, I, well, I, it's I, I I agree with you there because uh, the Lego Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings, uh, is such a serious high fantasy. Where I don't, you can't do that same type of seriousness necessarily with Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that I I feel it's it's a different directed audience than the Lord of the Rings original audience was. I, it, there's just not the same level of actors taking it that seriously. Um, I think that's actually a very typical example on more is not equal to better. Mm-hmm. Yes, agreed. Uh, I mean, I think. We're, we're, we're talking about this and not moving on to the other thing, but... Um, yeah. We're talking about what's important. We're talking about the real <laughs> real issues for real gamers. Yes. <laughs> uh, oh, Jesus. Keep bringing it all sides this episode, everybody. All sides. <laughs> I haven't... I, I need to come back to the Lego uh, Lego Star Wars and Lego franchise games, because I, I fell off the map after the third one. Um, the, mm-hmm. Like, the the compendium that came out before the new trilogy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which was 
again, amazing. I played it on the Wii, and it was just oh, yeah. one of the best games of all oh. time. That's uh, where I used then. on one of the That's best the platform I used to play time. it on yeah. too. I mean, I used to play so, Lego yeah. games on Wii. Oh yeah, yeah. That was the console to play. That was, Lego yeah. yeah, that was that was the gaming console. That was, um, yeah, the, the only true gamers played on the Wii. Yeah. Oh, I miss those days. Um, yeah, but no, I need to I need to go back and see uh, what's changed and what's the same and whether it's still got the same charm that I remember from I don't know 2007. Jeez, it's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, about that long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thirteen years. Time flies. Yep. Yeah. Can't Tell it. me about it. <laughs> uh, but no, those were good days. Yes. Yeah. Um, but once again, I want to thank, and also I don't think that we would have any of these. Uh, I don't know. There was never any online Lego experiences. But anyway, like we see that Lucasfilm is teaming up with Bethesda now for this new Indiana Jones game, um, and we heard a little bit about the technical side of what. Lucasfilm and Lucasfilm Games originally did from Chip Chip and Matt earlier about the super technical side of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we also got to say, uh, next week, you'll be looking forward to an interview with uh, Randy Farmer, uh, who is one another one of the original people that worked with uh, Lucasfilm Games and one of the co-creators of the game uh, Habitat, uh, which is one of our favorite exhibits that we have at the museum of art and digital entertainment here. Yeah. Um, you can also check it out uh, yourself and we'll give you that link coming that next episode. But, Oh man, he is a, uh, he an insight into some great yeah, stuff. It's probably not about games, but one, one thing that is mentionable about him is he's one of the co-designer of Yahoo film Jam 62. So, Yep. Yeah, he has quite a track record. Um, yeah. Yes, Randy's a, and still involved. Guy. Yeah. Yes, and still involved in the series very much. So, we will. Uh, I, maybe we'll settle this uh, video game movie talk uh, next week as well as uh, a longer part <laughs> of our ongoing trilogy of uh, Lucasfilm and adventure games. Uh, but we will be continuing talking about the history of adventure games uh, for all of y'all out there. Um, Thank you all for listening. Uh, basically, um, I don't... Okay, I have one little tidbit of what we've been playing. I'm, I haven't been... But with the world uh, going the way it is, I haven't... I've just been uh, playing more more cyberpunk. Uh, but not to get too deep, because we will get into that. Um, it is set in an area that is close to my hometown on the Central Coast. And one of my favorite little tidbits that they have is... The old uh, butt rock station that I used to listen to as a child, uh, New Rock 107.3 on the Central Coast. It's no longer a radio station, unfortunately. It is memorialized as Moro Rock 107.3 in Cyberpunk 2077. That is a a childhood connection that I never thought I would see in a AAA game. Um, somebody from the Central Coast worked on this game and put that in there mm-hmm. and... Uh, Thank you, whoever you that are. Is, that, is a, that is a really nice little Easter egg. <laughs> that for it, it is so you, it is so obscure. There's tons of movies and games about California, but for like my small my small town butt rock radio station that has been off the air for years mm-hmm. to be immortalized. I mean, in 
in a less than perfect launch, I say is also pretty fitting. Maybe it's um, one of your neighbors who did it. Probably. I, I bet. Joe. Somebody I bet it was knows. you, you 90-year-old sailor. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it was him. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyways, I think it's about time for us to wrap it up for all y'all, and then we will continue to talk to you every week, and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, please shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send a big thank you to all of our uh, Patreon donors and everyone who donated recently. They keep the maid afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services, and we will continue that with future episodes every week. Until next time. I'm Miles. I'm Chin. And I'm Red. Thank you. Play what you love and love what you play. See you next time. See you next time. See ya.